Hello, beer fans, and welcome to Experimental Brewing with Denny and Drew. I'm Denny Kahn. And I'm Drew Beecham. Together, we're the authors of Experimental Homebrewing, Mad Science in the Pursuit of Great Beer, and Homebrew All-Stars, where we interview 25 of the world's best brewers and bring their tips, tricks, and secrets to your eyeballs. Now, between the two of us, we have nearly 40 years of homebrewing experience. I'm the guy known for weird beer and strange ideas. And I'm the guy who's known for questioning the conventional wisdom and checking it out. Uh, and on today's episode, well, you know, we've got a bit of feedback that we're going to cover. Uh, we have a visit to the Correctional Department of Corrections. And not me this time. Yay! <laughs> for once. <laughs> for once. Uh, we're going to go into the pub, talk some beer news that's happening around the world. Uh, go back to the lab to go... Uh, We'll revisit the purge experiment that we announced in the last episode and you know, some of your feedback about different techniques that people try. Uh, then in the lounge, we're actually we're going back to Fargo. Remember uh, earlier this year, we did a bunch of episodes from Fargo. And, well, it's time for the Hoppy Halloween competition, and we saved an interview just for this time of year because planning or something. <laughs> Hop in the Wayback Machine, Sherman. All right, Mr. Peabody, let's take it away. Let's go to Q&A. And then something other and a quick tip before we get you on your way and back to your desk or back home. But before we do all that, we want you to hear a quick word from a few of our sponsors who make this show possible. Stick around. We're going to be right back. This episode is brought to you by Pico Brew, makers of the Zymatic and Pico Brewing Systems. The brewing systems of the future are here now. Discover how easy and rewarding it is to make great beer with Pico Brew. And by Craftmeister and BTF Iota 4. When you absolutely, positively need to make every surface clean, bust out the cleaners with professional power and home brewer safety. Make better beer with better chemistry. Choose Craftmeister. And by the American Homebrewers Association, a community of more than 46,000 beer lovers. Since 1978, the AHA and its members have worked to promote and celebrate the homebrewing hobby and community. Join today for six issues of Zymergy Magazine, AHA member discounts on beer, food, and brewing supplies, access to exclusive events and competitions, and a bunch of other cool stuff that'll take too long to list here. Head over to homebrewersassociation.org or experimentalbrew.com and get yourself a membership. And by you, our listeners, go to experimentalbrew.com to help support us. Click on the Patreon link to donate whatever amount you'd like to help support us and our charities. Click on the Brew Your Own Magazine link to subscribe to BYO. Or click on the AHA link to join the American Homebrewers Association and receive a subscription to Zymergy Magazine. Part of the proceeds from those go to help support the podcast. Thanks for your support. Aren't our sponsors wonderful? Don't forget to tell them that when you, uh, well, when you go do something with them, that you heard about them through us. Remember, it helps. So... And if you haven't seen, last week's episode of The Brew Files came out. It's episode 20. I don't know how the heck we're getting to 20 episodes there. 20, really, man. And this week's episode was fun because I got to sit down with Oleg Spierko and Sean Smith at Camarillo's Institution Ale Company and talking about how 
Oleg's beer was selected to be brewed as a pro-am, and exactly what does it mean to scale a feats-of-strength Russian Imperial Stout from a little homebrew setup all the way up to a big commercial rig? So if you haven't checked that episode out, please do. It's fun. Yeah, it is, man. It was it was pretty interesting, uh, in spite of the fact that uh, those guys had a real challenge. They seemed to pull it off. We also want to remind you about a deal going on right now from our sponsor, Pico Brew. If you're in the market for a Zymatic, you can get $300 off by entering the code PICODENNY, that's P-I-C-O-D-E-N-N-Y, when you check out uh, from their website store with your order. Again, if you're in the market for a Zymatic, save yourself 300 bucks with the code PICODENNY at PICOBREW. 300 bucks makes a lot of beer. Yeah, it does, man. You can buy a lot of grain for that. And don't forget that you can support the podcast by leaving us a review in Apple Podcasts. Click the Amazon, AHA, or BYO links on the website. And by going to Patreon and pledging a buck or two or more to our charitable cause, which for this part of the year is... It is Axel's Angels and the Desi Strong Foundation. These guys are helping to fund the care and treatment of pediatric cancer. I mean, it's a great cause. Try to throw them a few bucks. Go to the website, experimentalbrew.com, click on the Patreon link there, and give whatever you can afford to help these kids with cancer. And believe me, it'll make your day, and you'll feel better afterwards. Remember, here at the Experimental Brewing, we like kids more than we like cancer. <laughs> yeah, well, I'll tell you, uh, that's not a hard choice, is it? No, it's not. Yeah, that's the correct answer. Okay, I think it's time for some feedback all right feed it back okay so our first piece of feedback where you talk back to us comes from andrew brown who wrote us an email says drew and denny i came across drew's yeast starter recipe and thought it'd be a great way to get in the habit of making starters i agree so i found a great deal on a pre-owned pressure cooker and was ready to dive into canning starters while getting the pressure gauge on my canner verified for accuracy at my local extension service office the extension agent asked what i planned to can when I mentioned yeast starters, her ears perked up. She wanted to make sure I was using a verified canning recipe for yeast starters. I brought up your procedure as well as a host of others, but none of them were linked to an extension service or lab verified process. So long story short, is there a source for the canning procedure? He says, my extension agent suggests that I contact the Oregon State University Food Preservation Hotline, which I did. They weren't aware for a recipe for canning wort either, but suggested that I contact a local homebrew supply shop and let them know what I found out. I don't have a local homebrew supply shop, so I'm asking you. While looking at the OSU page, I did come across a method of canning apple juice, which I think would be similar to wort as far as sugar content and pH levels, and jives with Drew's method. My local extension agent also picked me up in the food sciences lab at NDSU, which could use my canning procedure to make a sample and check whether to make sure it was safe. Anyways, I really appreciate any insight either of you could provide. If this is something that hasn't been looked into yet, I might just have the testing done so that the resource is out there for other brewers. Thanks, Andrew Brown. So, a Andrew, you're right. I don't actually have a certification or anything else about this procedure. This was all based off of really what's kind of bog standard FDA rules for uh, canning high pH foods. You know, so P it, it, canning works best with lower pH foods like tomato sauce, which is when you can use just basically a boiling water bath. If you have a food that doesn't ha that isn't as acidic, then the FDA recommends that you do pressure treatment in order to kill off botulism spores, right? Because botulism spores can be killed by a combination of time, temperature, and pH. And so when you're doing a, a low acid food, they always recommend a pressure cannon. And that's exactly what I did. So I don't actually have any certification on this, but 
I think it would be rock and roll if we could get some. To that point, we've actually reached out to Andrew and said, we will actually cover the fee uh, if there's a small fee for doing the testing at NDSU. I am like 99% certain that the pressure canning method is safe, but I would really like to get this test done just to find out if my guess is correct. Um, I, I know that uh, everything I've read leads me to believe that it is totally safe, but uh, there's nothing like getting certification to know for sure. Well, I can already tell you you're certified. <laughs> yeah, right. Okay, our next piece of feedback comes from Andrew Roth, who says, Good morning, Denny and Drew. I'm a big fan of both the Experimental Brewing and Brew Files podcasts and listen to them on my way to my side job at a homebrew store. I'm also one of your Igors. My homebrew club, the Central Wisconsin Vintners and Brewers, does a group cider press every year. We did over 400 gallons last year using a grinder from the 1890s, so I enjoyed the refresher in your cider episode. I do have some tips, though, in regard to natural yeast fermentation. Denny mentioned that several of his attempts with no sulfite and no commercial yeast ended with vinegar. I was curious if you're checking the pH and titratable acid of your must. Keeping the starting pH below 3.5 helps to inhibit the growth of bacteria, and using a vessel with minimal headspace works to deprive any acetobacter bacteria of oxygen. Further, there is some work you can do with sulfites if you know the pH where you add enough to kill wild bacteria but leave the yeast intact. Hopefully you'll find this info interesting, if not useful. Uh, Brian, yeah, thanks a bunch for the info. It is interesting. It's good to know. And no, I have never done any of that stuff because, quite frankly, it's a lark for me. <laughs> I have the apple juice. Uh, we press our apples. We get apple juice from our neighbors. They have a big cider pressing. And so it kind of becomes an it-is-what-it-is kind of situation for me. Uh, but let me tell you, should I decide to try the natural no-yeast fermentation again, I will definitely look to your tips for trying to make it work better. Yeah, stop trying to make him do work. He hates <laughs> yeah, work. man. I know, I know, man. I would rather just, like, uh, see what happens, right? It's, it's the experimental way. And our last piece of feedback comes from Brian Mills, also about cider. He says, uh, I just got done listening to the latest Brew Files episode about cider making. Near the end, you talked about ways to sweeten your cider. I actually started out my homebrewing hobby by making hard lemonades. The first ones were not that great, but one thing I have tried recently was back sweetening with Splenda. Well, the generic version. It's worked pretty well. You can add it in at any time since it doesn't ferment, though typically I've added it to my sugar mixer during the batch priming. The results have been received pretty well. Just another idea for how to sweeten without added fermentation, especially for the bottlers out there. And yep, uh, Brian's absolutely right. I totally forgot to mention that you can use artificial sweeteners to do your thing. Now, obviously, there are a bunch of people out there who don't like the idea of using artificial sweeteners for anything, but whatever. If you don't mind some of those chemical tastes from the sweeteners, and I'm a guy who slugs back enough Diet Coke that I'm not sure I have taste buds for artificial sweeteners anymore. Artificial sweeteners are a perfectly acceptable way to do it. I will warn one thing about using things like Stevia or Splenda or anything else. Most of those substances are so sweet to the human palate that they're actually usually packed with filler. You know, and a lot of times that filler is actually dextrose. So when you go and use those, you have to keep in mind, there may be some additional fermentation happening from the dextrose that's actually bulk packed in there in order to actually make it so that you can measure out a reasonable amount of Splenda without like overpowering your taste buds. So totally true. You can go ahead. If, you, if you're down with the artificial sweetener count, 
You can totally use that in order to back sweeten your ciders. So you're saying there's sugar in artificial sweeteners? A little bit. Yep. Wow. Wow. The things you learn when you pay attention to Drew. Uh, Or you read package labels. Well, there's that too. Yeah, of course. Okay. And on to the Correctional Department of Corrections. Wait, wait, uh, wait, hold on. Yes. I'm not talking during this segment. I like this. <laughs> yeah, that's right. So, uh, so far, the score is about uh, 18 corrections for Drew, and this is my first one. But uh, let, me, let me read you this email that we got from Ed Bove. Good evening, Denny. I just got done listening to episode 50 of the podcast. Hard to believe it's been 50 episodes plus 20 of the Brew Files already. Boy, you're telling me, Ed. Yeah, I know. <laughs> how time flies and off book i would tell you you and drew were doing a fantastic job oh see we like ed already anyway at the end of episode 50 you answered the questions to a gentleman named anthony regarding dehydrated mushrooms and adding significantly more to your chanterelle recipe i would suggest not doing that although i've never brewed with mushrooms i'm a food safety and quality assurance guy dealing with dehydrated foods which includes various mushrooms Rehydration ratios for mushrooms cover a range. Nutritionally speaking, one pound dehydrated is equivalent to anywhere from four and a half to eight pounds fresh. I know that you're going for more flavor than nutrition, but in my experience, mushrooms typically used in gravies and seasoning mixes are nowhere near that heavy-handed and provide a strong mushroom base flavor for our customers. Instead of adding four to five times more, I would add four to five times less to avoid over-seasoning that brew. Your idea for rehydrating them with beer is a great idea. I would just note that you will never fully rehydrate a dehydrated item because of some of the cellular damage that occurs in the dehydration process, although you will be fairly close. Heating it as well will speed up the process, and it should take anywhere from 10 to 15 minutes. I hope this helps. You can pass along my information to him if needed. I'd be happy to send a commercial spec for what we do, not to make a sale, but to help from one brewer to another. Cheers and best of luck. Ed Bove, Q&A Director, Silva International Incorporated, which uh, deals with dehydrated fruits and vegetables. Ed, thank you very, very much for your email, and believe me, you're not the only one who uh, wrote in to correct my mistake there. I think that actually uh, I was thinking what you said, but the words came out backwards. So there, I I can kind of like pretend like uh, like I knew what I was talking about. So at any rate, the idea is use four to five times less dehydrated mushrooms, not four to five times more, and rehydrate them before you use them. And as Ed said, and if you've ever cooked with uh, dehydrated mushrooms, you know that you can't ever fully rehydrate them. But hey, they're close, and they'll give up their flavor into the beer. How'd I do there, since you're an expert? Not bad. I don't think you took enough, uh, you know, enough humbling time to heart. But you did flip the script, so I'll give it uh, to you. I am humble. I am humble. I am humble. Believe me, I made a mistake. Mea culpa. Mea culpa. Mea maxima culpa. Uh, you're showing your age. <laughs> I guess. Okay. After all that, I think that we need to head over to the pub for a drink, huh? Yeah. You, yeah, you need to assuage your guilt. <laughs> yeah, that's right. I need to just kind of like wipe it out completely. So uh, stick around. We're going to be right back after these words from our sponsors. Are you a fan of chocolate, but not of the mess that comes from using cacao nibs? 
Chalaka is your answer. A favorite of Tim Matthews at Oscar Blues, it contains only cacao and water. Chalaka is aseptically packaged, so you don't have to worry about any bugs coming along uninvited. Using only sustainably sourced cacao, every bottle of Chalaka you buy helps regrow the rainforests of Ecuador and Peru. Ask for Chalaka wherever Brewcraft USA products are sold. Thanks for sticking around. We are sitting here in the Experimental Brewing Pub at the corner of Everywhere and Nowhere in Your Town, USA, and we are having beers. What are you drinking today, Drew? Uh, I'm drinking North Park Beer Company's First of Many. It's their anniversary IPA for their first uh, anniversary. It's uh, brewed by a good friend of mine uh, at North Park uh, by the name of Kelsey McNair. Kelsey is a multi-award-winning home brewer, really kind of a great guy. But he finally got his brewing company off the ground in North Park neighborhood of San Diego. They're making a lot of really great stuff. And it's not just all IPAs, even though it's in San Diego. Uh, he also had a really great uh, Oktoberfest and a really great uh, Session Ale, which is actually his uh, Scottish Ale that I remember from the time when it was a homebrew recipe as well. But today, it's the first of many. Cool, man. I am having a double IPA from Elsong Brewing and Blending here in Eugene. Uh, I know you've heard me talk about them before. They're making some amazing beers, and they recently celebrated their first anniversary. Now, most breweries for their anniversary will make some really special barrel-aged beer, and you know, something that they just go all out on to pull out all the stops in the weird beer world. Well, that's kind of what Elsong does for their normal beers. So they decided for their anniversary beer, they were going to make a double IPA and put it in cans. So, rather than a barrel-aged beer from corked bottles. And let me tell you, this is an amazing double IPA. It has a wonderful malt character to it. It's caramely, it's toasty, but it has bitterness that really, really comes through and just a wonderful hop aroma and flavor to it. Uh, so, uh, should you happen to be in the area or see it where you are, grab a can of the Alesong Brewing and Blending First Anniversary Double IPA. Mmm, beer and cans. <laughs> yeah, really. And so, speaking of cans, we thought we'd yes? uh, really quickly revisit the whole ABI and Miller and those guys canning water in the wake of things like Houston and Puerto Rico and uh, the hurricanes hitting everywhere. And we actually got reached out to by Gary Glass, our good friend over at the HA, to actually point out that some of the bigger craft breweries and some even the smaller craft breweries are also canning water now and getting in on the act. So Oscar Blues, for instance, which revolutionized craft canning for everybody, they were canning water for hurricane relief. And a bunch of Houston breweries were also providing clean water to people who were out water as well. So it's not just a big boy thing anymore. It's now everybody. Yeah, right on. And uh, all we can say is thank you to all the breweries who are doing this uh, large, small. Amen. So, as we record this, the Great American Beer Festival is happening in Denver, Colorado. Yeah, my Instagram feed is full of all sorts of pictures of people having too much fun. But they're doing something a little bit different this year, huh? 
Yeah, so in years past, one of the big questions was always like, hey, so if Brewers Association is all about protecting smaller craft brewers from the machinations of the big guys, well, one, why are the big guys members of the Brewers Association? And they are, they're associate members. They're not allowed to be full voting members. And then also, why the heck do they have such a big presence at the GABF? If you'd ever gone in the past, you know that Anheuser-Busch and Miller and Coors and all these guys would have big booths in the middle of these fields and like in caps and they were sponsors and a lot of money. Well, the money is part of the part of the thing. But now this year with the launch of the independent beer uh, movement uh, by the Brewers Association, suddenly that really starts to become even more head scratching. So actually because of that and a couple other factors, including literally not having enough space on the floor for everybody who wants to pour beer, the BA changed the rules for how breweries can be involved, particularly if they're associate members. So now, associate members, a.k.a. Anheuser-Busch, Miller, Coors, and all of their associatedly owned breweries are now no longer allowed to be full-fledged sponsors, right? So they, they won't have, like, the big, you know, promotions everywhere. They're not allowed to have the end caps anymore. And also, more importantly, they now actually have to have a lottery to see how many of their brands they can bring in. So, for instance, any of the ABI high-end uh, breweries are all sort of sandwiched into one pool, and a brewery, ABI is only allowed to choose one brewery to send, unless they can actually get some more floor space. And so this year, ABI ended up with, I think it was Four Peaks and Blue Point as their brands on the floor. And they only got the second one because a couple of smaller craft breweries had pulled out at some point. They had said, yes, we're going to be there, and then said, oh, wait, no, we can't be there. So... It's interesting to see that they're kind of starting to line that up and actually taking a hit on the money front to kind of stand behind the whole independence matters idea. And what's also funny to me, though, is I'm also seeing a lot of feedback online from people who kind of think there's something sort of two-faced about this or like two-faced about, oh, well, you're allowing them to be members, but now you're restricting them and this, that, and the other. And I don't know. I mean, to me, this seems like, well, you're an associate member, you're not a full member, and membership rules kind of change. It's kind of the point. I have no opinion. (laughs) (laughs) Or maybe I should say that I am going to, uh, for one time, keep my mouth shut. I don't know why today would be any different, but I'll roll with it. Okay, cool. And and speaking speaking of uh, times when you actually have to kind of shut up and you know do what your bosses tell you. There was a, a situation here involving the winners of the Ninkasi Award at the National Homebrew Competition last year. Father Jeff Poirot and his brewing buddy Nick McCoy came home with Ninkasi last year. Well, Father Jeff was just recently apparently informed by his bishop that the bishop did not want him homebrewing anymore. There is no explanation of why. Father Jeff, being the good father that he is, kind of went, okay, if that's what you say, that's what I'm going to do. It doesn't make much sense to me, considering the number of uh, religious organizations out there where brewing is a major part of their service. But, you know, there's really not much to say about this other than it happened. Father Jeff made his decision, and he's living with it. And good on you, Father Jeff. And for me... The weird part is, as you pointed out, you know, religious tradition, there's a lot of brewing religious tradition, and particularly in the Catholic Church. So, yeah, that's a little bit of a head-scratcher, and, and Father Jeff was quoted in a couple articles as saying, oh, you know, I bring my homebrew around to the parishioners and you know, sit down, and people would talk about it, and it was kind of a bonding thing. So, who knows? 
but it is kind of hard to argue with your boss when your boss says he has God on his side. <laughs> yeah, that's right. Apparently the parishioners didn't mind at all, but if the bishop does, you do what the bishop says because that's the, uh, the gig that you signed up for, right? Indeed. All right, and then the last one, you know, as homebrewers, we tend to always talk around the whole kegel thing. You know, hey, I, I got my hands on some kegs, and I'm going to turn them into kettles. And if you've been on the homebrewing forums for any period of time in the last, I don't know, decade, you know that you're always going to be admonished by people for that. You know, it's like, hey, those those aren't your property. Those are stolen, effectively. Yeah, you, you can legally obtain them, but too many people yeah. don't. I mean, you find them at scrapyards and whatnot where they've been sort of illegally sold into the system, etc. Well, cooperage or kegs is a big expense for breweries. This is the reason why a lot of people have gotten sort of up in arms about it over the years. You know, hey, don't don't take the kegs away from even Anheuser-Busch because those things are expensive. And your deposit doesn't come anywhere close to covering the cost of those things. So here's the real question is that, you know, a lot of time and energy is spent by breweries trying to reclaim their kegs so that they can pull them back into the brewery so they can clean them, so they can refill them with beer, so they can turn around and sell them so that they can sell more beer. Well, what happens though if right. a place with a lot of beer goes out of business? Yeah, really. So what this situation is, is that there was a, uh, a pizza place in Aurora, Colorado called A-Town Pizza, and uh, they went out of business, and in order to satisfy their debt to the city, the county, whoever, their empty AKA kegs... the tax man. The, yeah, right, the tax man. Um, their kegs were seized by the county and were scheduled to be sold at auction. Uh, the county didn't care that these kegs didn't belong to the restaurant. They didn't care that they didn't belong to them. They were going to sell these kegs for the scrap metal money and uh, recoup what they were owed. Well, this wonderful company called Growler USA stepped in, bought the kegs, and returned them to their rightful owners without any thought of getting reimbursed for what they did. This is like good karma to the max, folks. Uh, this is a, a wonderful thing, and we want to give Growler USA the experimental brewing commendation for doing the right thing. Yeah, that's a big old thumbs up with a cheesy smile. <laughs> no, Growler USA, if you don't know, I guess they're a little franchise location that each of the places has like 100 taps. Right, so they're kind of a big multi-keg multi taproom. And that was just really kind of cool to see that they'd stepped up and said, no, they, those kegs, we'll take those. And then uh, turn around. I, I know that, like, I think Dry Dock Brewing Company was going to try and arrange to buy the kegs as well and then return them to the various breweries for a fee. And Grello USA just basically stepped up and said, nope, we'll do it. Thank you. Yeah. Well, and, and what's cool is that keg theft is a huge multi-million dollar problem every year uh, in terms of brewery costs. And it's one of, of many reasons that the cost of beer keeps going up. So Growler USA, in a way, was looking out for their own interest and their customers by doing this. But still, it was just a totally killer thing to do and once again thank you growler usa if any of you are near their locations go buy something from them and tell them thank you and tell them thank you from us too yeah so pretty rad act craft beer is rad be rad <laughs> be rad as opposed no never mind all righty so i guess that uh, it's time to suck down these beers and head over to the brewery huh 
I'm taking mine with me. I'm having a road dog. <laughs> okay. Drew's taking his beer over to the brewery. We're going to talk about a brewing spreadsheet that he's developed, and you can download for yourself absolutely free of charge when we come back. Stick around. Y Yeast has been producing premium liquid yeast for over 30 years and continues to provide homebrewers with the same quality, purity, and reliability as the professionals. Denny Kahn and Drew Beecham collaborated with Y-East to bring you this quarter's private collection. As the weather starts to cool, some of the world's greatest beer festivals are getting ready to celebrate. Lagers can be the ideal beer for any season, but there's no better time than autumn to brew some of the classics. With their lower fermentation temperatures and accentuated maltiness, our 2002 PC Gambrinus Lager, 2487 PC Hellebach, and 2575 PC Kolsch II will lend ideal variety and complexity through the months to come. Get them October through December 2017. We've made our way over here to the brewery. We're sitting here amidst all the shiny stainless steel and humming pumps and all that stuff. And Drew is going to talk about something that he actually put together with his own two hands. And a little bit of Excel. Absolutely. And I've had this thing for years and just on a whim the other week when I was brewing, I put it up on, I put a screenshot of it up on, on Facebook because, hey, you know, silly things I do while I'm brewing. And got a lot of questions from people about it. So here's the thing is what I, what I do is I use math to calculate how much volume I have in my kettle. I know other people, you know, they do things like mark their kettles or they have a stick that they mark. I think that's what you do, Denny, right? Yep, you got a I stick. do. Magic stick. Uh, I know. Well, my, my main boil kettle is a 26-gallon vessel. And when I was first setting it up, I was feeling horribly lazy and I didn't want to do the whole thing of like, here you go, measure out a gallon, measure out a gallon and a half, measure out two gallons, mark it on a stick, right? And then maybe do some math and make a magic stick. So instead, I made my magic stick be a yardstick and a spreadsheet. So just using some simple math, you know, yield geometry and some naive assumptions about a boil kettle being a cylinder just to make everything easy. I put together a spreadsheet that allows me to say, hey, I'm reading 6.5 inches on my yardstick. How many gallons do I have in this kettle? And it comes back, it's, oh, it's 8.62. And then, of course, me being me, I had to go expand it even further because, you know, I constantly ask myself questions while I'm brewing. And I put in the ability to adjust your volume based on whether or not you're at boil. So, you know, 4% boil expansion uh, factor, for instance. So if it's measuring 8.62 gallons at a boil, that means it's actually 8.28 gallons, you know, when it's chilled down. Give me what the current OG is and what your target is and what your current volumes are. And I'll figure out like, okay, well, this is going to be what your OG is going to be when you're at your target volume. And also because I do batch sparging, you know, it's like, hey, I've collected eight and a half gallons of, of wort and I want 17 gallons in the kettle. So I need another 8.3 gallons to fill in for my batch sparge so I can calculate my second batch sparge. 
you know, all that sort of simple stuff. And people looked at it and saw it online and said, hey, that's kind of nifty. So I actually went and made a version of it that's cleaner and more generic and may actually be usable by people other than me. And also I got requests from people to say, hey, can you do that in metric too? So I taught myself how to make things switch around in Excel. So there's a dropdown. You can say English units or metric units. Yay, go team. Yeah, man. And you know, I'm for you that's easier. For me, marking the sticks easier. But <laughs> it's a it's a cool spreadsheet and we will definitely uh make it available for you at experimentalbrew.com so you can download your own copy and then send Drew some email telling him what a genius he is. Or more than likely issue me bug reports and tell me why I'm such a dundercoff. Yeah, why did you do it this way? How come you didn't do it like that? Yeah. Hey, that naive assumption that you make is naive. <laughs> That's why it's called naive. <laughs> That's right. Okay, so there you go. Drew's Brewing Spreadsheet will be available at experimentalbrew.com. Go grab it. See if it works for you. I'll keep my stick, thanks. Denny's magic stick. That's right, my magic stick. All righty, time to move from the brewery over to the lab. We have some feedback about the purge experiment that we talked about in the last episode. So stick around, and we'll be right back with that. Mecca Grade Estate Malt is a craft malt house owned and operated by the Klon family on their beautiful Central Oregon high desert farm. Their eighth generation Oregon farming family grows and malts all of their own specialty grain, creating malts that are rare, remarkable, and bursting with flavor. Malt is the foundation of your beer, so why settle? The best beers deserve Mecca Grade. For more information, please visit MeccaGrade.com. We're now over here in the lab. We have the Bunsen burners going. Drew is doing his Jacob's Ladder imitation. Not today. Okay. I'm not uh, feeling it today. <laughs> He's all Jacobed out. We have another piece of feedback here from Andrew Roth. We had a letter from him at the top of the show. Andrew says, I just finished listening to the episode with the results from the purge experiment and had some anecdotal evidence to add. First, I follow the same method of keg purging and, when possible, use a pressure racking system to achieve minimal oxygen ingress. Sadly, I can only do this with the carboys and not my big mouth bubblers due to the design of the big mouth. That sounds like a personal problem. <laughs> sure does. The anecdotal evidence I can provide comes from my time working for a Wisconsin brewery, who I can't mention by name due to a non-compete agreement I have with them and a general dislike of them due to pay issues. Ooh, I'm glad we're not going there. We ran oxygen tests on every batch of beer from fermenter to bottle and took tasting tests of the bottled beer every two weeks after packaging until it hit three months of age. This beer was further tortured by being stored at high temps. When we tasted the beer, only one taster knew how old the bottle was, and most tasters were blind to the recorded oxygen levels in the bottles. We consistently noted that even with a brown ale, the flagship of the brewery, that higher levels of oxygen led to degraded flavor faster than the batches with low oxygen. Sadly, we did not use any triangle tests, so as stated, this evidence remains anecdotal. We hope you find this evidence useful. Well, Andrew, 
you know, all I can say is I'm not I'm not real surprised. I, you know, I, I've said uh, before, we all know that oxygen is the enemy of beer. And if you can do something to keep it away, your beer will be better longer. But uh, thanks for doing those tests and letting us know about them. Yeah. Uh, and I mean, I've. I'm totally down for that. I, and actually, uh, before we get too much further, I, I do want to ex- stress to people that we are going to do some more testing along these lines because, you know, oxygen is not beer's friend. And we want to make sure that we have the right picture. That's right. That's so, right. And and don't forget, if you didn't listen to the last episode when we talked about this, basically we had uh, testers uh, test whether or not a full keg uh, purge, aka what I do, which is fill the keg up with water or sanitizer and push everything out with CO2 versus no uh, no purging at all, whether or not that made a difference in a hoppy beer, you know, did it affect the aroma? And the results on that were significant. So, and speaking of process, we have a piece of feedback from Matt Hines about the experiment. And he said, just a little feedback on the keg purging experiment. I've been purging kegs for a while now since I first heard Drew talking about it. I have found that the quality, especially over time, has improved since I started this method. I can't put it just on the purging because I've also made a few other changes to my brewing practices around the same time, but I think it's made a difference. I previously did no purge or the burst purge method. Now I use Drew's method and have worked it into my regular cleaning process. After I empty a keg, I will clean it out really well and then fill it up with a cleaning solution, usually OxyClean, and let it sit overnight. After that, I will dump it and either fill it up with sanitizer or leave it empty until I'm ready to sanitize it. I wait until I have a few kegs that are cleaned and ready to sanitize. I fill one up completely with sanitizer solution, and then using jumper tubing, I transfer the solution with CO2 from one keg to another until all have been sanitized. This leaves me with clean and sanitized kegs that are also purged of oxygen. I store them away pressurized until I'm ready to put something in there. That also allows me to check to make sure the kegs are properly holding their pressure. If I have one that's not pressurized, I know I need to check it out before using it. Finally, I purge the CO2 and rack from my fermenter spigot to the liquid post to further try to reduce the oxygen. This method works well for me because it helps me keep a good cleaning regimen while lowering oxygen and also testing the kegs that will hold pressure over time. Cheers, love the books, and the podcast. And yeah, what Matt talks about here is pretty much exactly what I do, except for I don't even tend to actually clean the kegs first. I'll, I'll rinse them out. You know, I'll get rid of all the obvious gunk. But I I save until I get like at least four kegs in a row ready to rock and roll, and I will chain them up and do the cleaning and the uh, the purging and the sanitizing, all basically in a single go, right? So I'll I'll do all the kegs, I'll get them cleaned, and then I pressurize them and I store them. I do still uh, because I still use some carboys in places. I'll still actually do a lot of pop the the whole lid off and racking through the top because. I've never really had a lot of great luck trying to go in through the liquid post, but when I'm pressurizing or when I'm doing a pressure transfer for my kegs, you know, my 10 gallon kegs that I ferment in, then I will totally just go in through the liquid post and it's awesome. Yeah. And that works, that works well if you're using a keg for a fermenter. Uh, I, you know, I don't sanitize my kegs ahead of time like Matt does, but I do uh, store them with pressure on them for the same reason. So I know if they're good. But I have a conundrum that I wanted to mention to you and see if you have any ideas about. Mm-hmm. You ready for a conundrum? <laughs> Maybe. Yeah. I'm confused as to whether or not I'm ready for a conundrum. There you go. Let's go for it. Okay. So I like to dry hop in my keg, in my serving keg. So the other day I was kegging some beer and I thought, oh yeah, I'm going to do the purge method and everything like that. But to dry hop in my keg... I tie a bag of hops to the dip tube, to the top of the dip tube, so that, you know, they don't fall down around the bottom of the dip tube and clog it. Um, And just on the off chance that I ever wanted to remove those keg hops, which I never have. But as Mm -hmm. I was going through that, I thought to myself, 
So look, I, I had this keg filled with CO2. I take the lid off, which not only allows oxygen in, but I'm sticking my hand in there, you know, trying to tie this monofilament to the dip tube. Mm -hmm. I'm dropping the bag of hops in there, which is going to displace more CO2. Mm -hmm. Is there is there any benefit to that purge that I just did by the time I get done doing all that stuff? Yeah, I mean, I think so. One, I will say, you and I have a different idea about where that bag should go in the keg. Yeah, why? I, 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 I like the bag sitting on top of the dip tube, like at the bottom. Uh, I, I, I put it down towards the bottom of the keg, but I don't like it to actually clog the dip tube. Nah, I, I like to get that last draw right through the hops. Uh. <laughs> oh, I, I get plenty of that, believe me. You know, It's just not sitting on the bottom of the keg. I guess this would be an interesting thing to test. You know, you know what I could do? I could try dropping a match into a keg after I've done that and see mm -hmm. what happens. Uh, yeah, and I'll, I'll guarantee you that the match will still go out. Yeah. Because, one, oxygen and CO2 aren't just going to magically, like, start mixing the second you open the keg. I mean, you'll get some mixing at the, the, the interface of the opening. But, I mean, it's not like, you know, unless you have, like, unless you're directing a fan into the keg or, you know, you're in doing this in monsoon winds, you know, you're not really going to get a deep mixing into the keg. The other problem is, you have to remember that your bag of hops, your dry hops, is already going to entrain a bunch of oxygen inside those hop right. or, or inside the hop cones, assuming if you're using... Sometimes you know, pellets, whole sometimes or, whole hops. Right. But I mean, regardless, you're going to be actually pulling in oxygen with the bag just from the media inside the bag. So I think no matter what, you're still getting a massive benefit from doing this process. I mean, is it absolutely perfect no but i still think it's going to be better than the amount of do that you'd have in the keg if you just did the cycle purge as opposed to the full purge i'd like to mention something that you kept saying over and over again which is i think and i'd like to throw this out there to our listeners if we have any uh, physicists or chemists out there who are familiar with henry's law what do you think guys is uh, once i open up the the keg and stick my arms in there and drop hops and stuff like that and mess around for 10 minutes getting the bag tied on is there still co2 left in the keg pro providing me any benefits so come on let's hear it from you smart guys because drew and i are tired of saying i think fine i'm certain <laughs> okay he's certain so let's hear from somebody who has some science to back up their certainty oh sure fine whatever what do you think this is a scientific beer podcast well we try we're not always there but we try no. okay enough about purging huh well yeah but hey guys if you have any other feedback about the purging experiment or other angles that you want us to tackle like denny's question about dry hops drop us a line you know where to find us podcast at experimentalbrew.com do it we always like hearing from you guys, and uh, if you have, same thing if you have ideas for experiments. We want to hear about them because uh, it really inspires us to get going. So now it's time to head over to the lounge, hop in the Wayback Machine, and listen to an interview that Drew did a year ago. Stick around. We're going to be right back. When I'm done brewing, I want to be done brewing, not waiting around for my work to cool. With the Hydra, the Corny Pillar, and the other great chillers from Jaded, I can be done when I'm done. No more waiting 20 minutes for the wort to cool enough to add whirlpool hops. No more messing with cleaning and sanitizing counterflow or plate chillers. With the super fast immersion chillers from Jaded, you can chill your wort in minutes without all the hassle. Jaded chillers aren't just works of art, they're the fastest, most effective chillers you can buy. Check them out at jadedbrewing.com. 
It's just about time. It's just about time. Don't you think it's about time? We talked about beer. Okay, this is the part where everybody sings. Beer, 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 beer. beer We're over beer. here in the lounge. We're in the comfy chairs. We're lounging. Uh, I don't know if Drew's wearing a smoking jacket. I don't even want to think about what Drew's wearing. But I'm wearing we do pants. A- <laughs> Good. He's wearing pants, so I don't have to go with that other image. Uh, This is an interview that uh, Drew did when he was in Fargo, North Dakota for the Hoppy Halloween homebrew competition about a year ago. You remember at the beginning of the year, we had a bunch of content from Fargo. We talked, for instance, to Susan Rude from Prairie Rose Meadery. We also went to Flatland Brewing in West Fargo and, you know, generally, you know, had fun exploring the city of Fargo, North Dakota and talking about Fargo jokes. And I was there to go speak at the Hoppy Halloween competition put on by the Prairie Homebrewers Companions. Now, self, you may ask, why are we back in Fargo? And the real answer to that is because, well, we're going to be talking with John Wilkinson in this segment. And John is actually, you know, sort of the guy who runs the Hoppy Halloween competition. And we're talking about the Hoppy Halloween competition because as we speak, the entry window is open for the 2017 Hoppy Halloween competition. You can go to hoppyhalloween.com and get your entries registered and dropped off by between October 7th and October 20th. But I wanted you guys to hear from, you know, the people putting on the competition, actually, you know, get a chance to listen to the brewers behind it. And this competition's a lot of fun. It takes place in Fargo. They make a whole to-do of it. There are skits involved, presentations. Last year, there was a wood chipper pouring blood red mead, etc. <laughs> Uh, wow. they have spe- yeah, they have special uh, special competition categories like uh, Halloween theme beer and the fresh killed hops beer category this year. <laughs> I love so, that one. Yeah, sit back, listen to the interview, uh, learn a little bit about you know not only the competition but also a little bit of microbiology in Fargo. And well, remember, give the Prairie Homebrewer Companions a, a shout out. Go enter the Hoppy Halloween competition and have some fun. John, you want to introduce yourself? Sure. My name is John Wilkinson. I'm a member of the Prairie Homebrewing Companions uh, Homebrew Club. I've been a member for, um, well, I guess we're approaching three years now. Um, so and I've somehow managed to rise to the de facto position of trying to run this competition as best one can. Um, I've been a homebrewer for nearly 19 years. I started brewing in the late 90s, took a break when kids and jobs came along and kind of re- rekindled that about five or six years ago and haven't stopped since. All right. So now you said you started brewing in the late nineties yep. and you, uh, what, what got you into brewing? Right. So I'm a biochemist by training. And when I was in graduate school, uh, one of my friends was working in a yeast lab mm-hmm. and while they were using yeast for science purposes, they said to this friend of mine said to me, you know, we should really start brewing beer as a group. And so three or four of us got in together. We bought our first equipment kit. We bought our first extract kit. We made our first beer. Um, I can't prove that it didn't put my roommate in the hospital the first time we tried it. <laughs> um, my other two friends that got went in on the kit with us, uh, they dropped away, but I kind of stuck with it for a couple more years. And then, you know, that sort of 
the rest is history, I guess. Well, see, and I, I love that because it, it seems like there's always or a good portion of the people who get involved in brewing, and particularly around the club scene, yeah. it's, oh, you know, I started brewing my friends, I kept brewing, they dropped Maybe. away, and, yeah. well, I guess I had to go find a bunch of other people who like to brew, too. That's right. And, and, that's, and that was sort of the search. You know, part of the reason why I didn't stick it out as long as I did in the beginning was because I didn't have a, a community around me um, mm-hmm. to sort of keep me going. Um, but what got me back into it were friends that said, I had a friend that came up to me and said, you know, I want to learn how to brew beer. And this was in, I don't know, 2010. So, you know, I kind of know how to do that. I've done it before. It's been, you know, eight or nine years since the last time I made a batch, but let's give it a try. And of course he got me excited about it. I don't think he's actually brewing anymore now either. So, you know, so, I just need a rekindling every now and then, and that'll, right. that'll keep me pushing toward. John, have you ever stopped to think that maybe you kill other people's brewing passions? You know, it's, um, I, I might be the last guy out of the door for a lot of different things. <laughs> brewing might be one of those things. <laughs> let's hope not, but, um, Hey, you never know. All right. Well, so uh, since you've had two separate uh, careers as, mm-hmm. as a home brewer, yeah. do you remember what the first beer was that you brewed when you first Yeah, started? it was an Irish red extract kit using hops that had been in the kit forever, dry yeast that had probably been in the kit forever. And at the time, I didn't realize it, but it was pretty much a green apple bomb by the time it was finished. Um, but you were happy with it because I made beer. I made beer. It was carbonated. It the, the, the bottles fizz when you pop the cap. Um, you know, it's and the thing about the roommate is the first night we served it, my roommate went to the hospital with food poisoning. Now, since he was the only one who got sick, we're pretty sure that there it wasn't, wasn't the beer. beer that did it. Um, and of course, now we know that there are no known human pathogens that can live in beer for the most part. So. Yeah, it, it had nothing to do with the undercooked chicken that you served for dinner. That's, that's exactly right. 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 Well, now, and then in your second brigade as a as a home brewer, when mm-hmm. you started, what was your first beer? Uh, it was also an extract, but it was um, it wasn't a kit. Um, mm-hmm. It was uh, extract with specialty grains. We did a, 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 an IPA, mm-hmm. um, and um, you know, my memory was that that was one of the first times that we hadn't done the sort of cookie cutter kit based mm-hmm. recipe. Um, it turned out a lot better than my previous experiences had been, you know, in, in the late nineties, you know, if you think about what were sort of the popular beers, IPAs were at least in my perception, only just now becoming popular. And mm-hmm. it wasn't a style that I'd really discovered yet. Yeah. You, you, but you mostly had, you went into your brew pub and they had, they'd have, Nevada, a, or they'd have a pale ale clone. That's or, right. Yeah. And, 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 you know, th- and that was kind of it. Uh, Irish reds, you know, mm-hmm. sort of the English, English, uh, uh, styles of stout, usually a dry stout in the Guinness. Yeah. yeah kind a of, a wheat or a blonde and a right. porter stout. Um, and so it wasn't a style that was on my radar screen when I first started brewing, and I kind of got away from the scene and came back. And, and honestly, part of that coincided with the explosion of internet availability, and you can get your hands on anything. Mm-hmm. Um, you know, late '90s you couldn't; you, yep. you were much more restricted. So, um, just the, the the proliferation of styles that you could actually make was was pretty exciting. But yeah, that was it. It was a, it was a an American style IPA. Um, turned out all right. Mm-hmm. Um, certainly better than my first attempts had been ten years prior, um, and was enough to keep us going. Two batches later, we were in, into all grain. Mm-hmm. You know, we, we we made that transition from from uh, extract to all grain, and well, uh, had it looked back. I mean, let's face it. At that point, you guys were already veteran brewers. You were just right. getting the training wheels. Back. That's right. That's right. Well, all right. Uh, now we talked a little bit about your homebrew. When did you first discover good beer? Uh, as a, as a drinker yep. of good beer. Yep. I think I appreciated good beer right about the time that I started drinking or started, started brewing uh, for the first time. Um, you know, I started seeing how, how different it could be uh, getting away from your sort of standard American lagers that mm-hmm. were so, so prevalent. Um, 
started seeking those sorts of things out. It was it pretty much coincided with my start of, of actually brewing. Do you, do you remember what the what the one was that made you go, huh? Old Rasputin. Well, <laughs> Rasty. Yep. Yeah, right. I, I, I had it in a, in a in a bar in Nashville, and I thought, you know, this is uh, there's something to this. It was funny because at the same time, I had started drinking coffee black, mm-hmm. no cream, no sugar, mm-hmm. and that was my preferred way of drinking it. Um, and it occurred to me that I liked flavorful coffee that was not doctored by the addition of other things, mm-hmm. sugar, cream, whatever. Um, and maybe I could start looking at beer the same way. And, and that's really what kind of started me opening my eyes to what kinds of flavors are out there, what you could enjoy and experience in a beer, and, and sort of started the snowball down the hill. Well, I have um, a friend of mine in the brewing scene who he he argued for years that you could tell, you could predict pretty accurately how much of a hophead somebody was going to be based on how they took their coffee. Good thing. And the blacker you take your coffee, the more, like the more, the more that you were into the bitter flavors. Yep, yep. Yep. Although I'll say that, you know, I enjoy the, the most bitter double IPAs, but at the same time, I really enjoy the subtlety of a well put together Munich Hellas, you mm-hmm. know, and actually I'll say that second part of my appreciation for beer has really developed in the last three or four years as I've gotten better as, as a BJCP, as a BJCP judge, just because I now somewhat respect the subtlety and difficulty in making those lighter styles. Mm-hmm. As a result, I probably enjoy them more than I used to. Um, so I don't know. My, my tastes are, if you were to ask me what my favorite beer was, I couldn't tell you because mm-hmm. I, it really does span the gambit in terms of things I appreciate. I just like it if it's well-made. Right. What the style is is less important. Well, then that that leads us into the next question, mm-hmm. uh, which is one of my favorites to ask anybody. Mm-hmm. So omitting the word balance, mm-hmm. describe your brewing philosophy. As much clean flavor as you can get as simply as possible. I'm a big fan of removing steps that are unnecessary that don't add to the process. Mm-hmm. So I try to keep it as simple as I can. So can, can you give an example of steps you remove? So I don't sparge anymore. Right. So like you're just doing no sparge beer? I'm or? pretty much doing most, most of the beers that I make nowadays, as long as they're under about 1060 starting gravity, I don't sparge anymore. Um, one issue is time. Mm-hmm. Um, the second issue is, you know, I went from, um, you know, sort of doing a cooler batch sparge to doing mm-hmm. something more complex with the pumps and, and, and fly sparging, all this kind of stuff. And if anything, my beer got worse. Mm-hmm. And I never did the experiment to show that that was why. Mm-hmm. Um, but at least in my own hands, I realized that, you know, I, I don't worry about trube in the kettle. I just dump it all in the fermenter. I don't try to strain stuff out for the most part. I just let it all go in primary and let the yeast do their job. Mm-hmm. <laughs> right? So my goal as a brewer, at least my, I guess, ultimately answering your question, my philosophy as a brewer is get the stuff to the yeast as quickly as possible and get the yeast as happy as they can be and let them do their job and then kind of walk away. <laughs> Go forth, multiply. That's right. That's right. Um, I will be back to take your waste. Yeah. And I, and I do try to spend a lot of time on the front end of, of yeast culturing and making sure that I've got, you know, relatively happy strains. Mm-hmm. I always do starters. I do typically do big starters, a lot of oxygenation. Um, and, you know, I'll, I'll keep strains in my refrigerator, um, you know, for a couple of years and use them over and over and over again. Um, I have a, a mother culture that I keep. Mm-hmm. Um, and one of the nice things about being a biochemist is I have access to things like autoclaves and sterilization equipment. So I can do a little bit more in terms of making sure that the stuff that I use 
is perhaps not exactly what I got when I bought it from White Labs or White East or whomever I buy the culture from, but um, is pretty darn close and, and has not gone through a lot of stress to mutate and become something different, even though they always do with every round of, of course fermentation. <laughs> so now I was going to say, since you are a biochemist and you have autoclaves and mm-hmm. you know, the rest of us are stuck with pressure cookers. Right. Um, when you when you're keeping your cultures around, I mean, are you like in stabs and slants and plates? No, I don't. You... I don't do stabs and slants. What I'll what I'll do is anytime I do a starter, I overbuild it, right? So that I can pull off what would be the equivalent of about a, a 100 billion cells. I'll aliquot that on a side in a in a sterile dish, let mm-hmm. it settle off, mm-hmm. decant, and then I store it in small 125 milliliter bottles mm-hmm. um, that have also been sterilized. Um, and if I'm not going to use that culture and it's about two months old, I'll just redo the starter. Mm-hmm. So I'll just kind of roll it forward. I don't necessarily brew with it, right. but I'll just do a little bit on the side just to keep it going, to keep it from dying. Mm-hmm. You know, I've had a couple of cultures where after four or five months in the refrigerator, they start to either die off completely or they go haywire. Um, and so, you know, I, I sort of look at the dates. Every time I open my refrigerator, what are the dates? You know, and if there's something that's getting a little old, I'll just, you know, do a little starter on it really quick. Now, that 125 mil uh sort of starter yeast culture thing that you've got going. Is it stored under wort? Is it stored under wort? Yeah. So, so what'll happen that, you know, that'll, that hundred billion yeast cells probably came from about 750 milliliters of the actual starter. Right. And so I'll let it settle and I'll pour off all but about a hundred mils of it, shake it up, Mm -hmm. dump it into the smaller vial. And so there's, you know, there's usually about half of the volume is actually spent wort on top of it as a way of helping protect it. I don't try to put it in water or wash it or anything like that. No no glycerol or no glycerol, you know, and and if, if I'm going to do it, you know, and we do have some slants, the the club does, does have a yeast bank, um, where we do have some glycerol stacks, I guess technically would be a stab. Mm -hmm. Um, you know, I don't like to fuss with that too much. It's um, a lot of work. It is a lot of work. And, you know, if you lose the culture, spend seven bucks and buy it again. You know, the, the commercial uh, strains are, are pretty easy to, to, to get hands on now. And, um, you know, I, I like to reuse cultures for convenience. Mm-hmm. So I've got, you know, four or five strains in my refrigerator. So I want to brew Belgian today. Well, I'll pull out the Belgian strain or I want to do something English, you know. Um, and it's nice to have the convenience of, you know, I want to brew two days from now. I don't have to worry about you know, getting the yeast strain in mm-hmm. hand and all that kind of rigmarole. It's there. Um, so it, it's, it's more a matter of convenience for me than mm-hmm. trying to save money per se because, you know, yeast is not, in my opinion, the most expensive part of the equation. <laughs> it's the hops that can get out of hand if, if you're going super crazy with your hop schedule or something yeah, like that. Yeah, it can be. But yeah. I, I, would, I would argue the most expensive part is the time. Yeah. But yeah. barring that. Right. Um, so now you said that uh, you, uh, you keep some strains on hand. The club has a couple of stabs mm-hmm. yep. or, uh, in storage. So what what kind of strains are you keeping on hand? Like what do you what do right. you what do you keep in house? Right. So right now um, I've got American California Ale. Mm-hmm. Uh, I've got the O2 uh, White Labs uh, English yeast mm-hmm. strain. Um, I've got the White Labs Kolsch strain, mm-hmm. which I've. I've often used for lagers because mm-hmm. I think that one is clean enough if you're careful with it that you can get a pretty lager-like character out of it. I don't do a lot of lager brewing, mm-hmm. and, and when I do, it's typically using the, the, the White Labs Cold Strain because um, it just seems to be, at least in my hands, uh, effective at that. Um, and I've recently gotten the 1318 Weist London mm-hmm. 3 Strain. Um, I want to play with it. You know the sort of new New England IPA mm-hmm. style. I, I'm going to do a little bit of that, but I really want to actually start focusing on English styles mm-hmm. um, and playing that head to head with the uh, O2 strain and, and kind of seeing what kind of different characteristics I can coax out of those two different strains. So you know, I've got five. I think there's a. I think the Belgian Ardennes strain from Weiss uh, is the is the one Belgian I've got at the moment. Mm-hmm. 
I haven't been doing a lot of Belgians lately. I did when I first got back into this in 2010. That was when I actually first discovered the Belgian styles and was really excited about them. Made a lot of them and you know, it kind of ran its course. I'm kind of coming back to, yeah, to my heritage, which is England. So, <laughs> <laughs> well, now, what do you do? You keep anything special in the slants? Is there? A, I don't know. I don't. I don't. So, so as far as the club is concerned, um, there are a couple of uh, somewhat archival strains. So, there's mm-hmm. at least one strain from the English uh, East Bank, the Norwich strain, 1187. Mm-hmm. Um, which we don't think is actually commercially available, and we have our hands on it. Mm-hmm. And so we have that one. I don't know that there's a lot of club members that still use it, but we've got it. Mm-hmm. So if anybody wanted to get it, they could. Right. Um, I think there's one of the Belgian strains that we have that I think is in a similar vein. It's not really the same as any of the commercial strains out there. And so if one of the club members needs it, you know, actually in my freezer in my lab, mm-hmm. <laughs> in the, the, my the, minus 80 freezer, there's a say. box that says do not open. Um, and that's where we're at. That's, that's sort of where we're storing our yeast stuff at the moment. Yeah. And for any of our listeners who aren't anywhere near the biological trade, when you hear biologists talk about the, their freezers, they're not like the freezer that you and I think of. They're, they are really freaking cold and really consistently cold. Yeah. Uh, commercial uh, home freezers, you know, vary in temperatures and come up to a thaw cycle. That's why you don't get ice growth in them. That's right. And but yeah, these uh, biology science freezers are designed to be cold, stay cold, and yeah. don't you dare move from there. Eighty degrees below uh, zero Celsius. Yeah. So really cold, even colder than it is outside right now. That's right. Yeah. <laughs> um, all right. So let's see uh, what. Uh, Given your sort of bifurcated brew career mm-hmm. that you've gone through, what do you think is the most unusual beery thing that you've done? The most unusual beer thing I've done? Mm-hmm. Um, you mean as a brewer or as a, someone who actually enjoys drinking beer? I'll go for either. Most unusual. I don't know that I would describe anything I've done as unusual. I, I would say that... Um, as somebody who considers himself relatively detail-oriented, I probably spend an inordinate amount of time on a spreadsheet planning all of the numbers before I brew a batch, mm-hmm. even down to like water chemistry, you know, uh, predicted mash efficiencies based on um, extract yields. I'll even break it down based on the kinds of malts that I've got in the grain bill. Mm-hmm. You know, that one's eighty percent extractable. This one's seventy-two percent extractable. So. You know, maybe that's just nerdy more so than unusual. But um, don't knock the nerdy. The nerdy, well, then, I, you know, I, I, I hit that category pretty well. So yeah. I mean, I don't know if you've looked around at our hobby, but there's a fair number <laughs> of nerds in yep. this uh, in this hobby. Quite a few. Yeah. All right. Um, Scientists in me gets excited because of, of this particular hobby because there's a lot of room for um, not only the the community to act as scientists and mm-hmm. show how uh, brewing can evolve, but but also it's a chance for them to see how science actually works, right. and how they can actually take it to other areas of their own life and and understand kind of how to use it properly. So, well, I, and yeah, and I was I was talking last night to one of the club members who teaches uh, over North Dakota State, talking about practical science and brewing yeah. classes. Yeah. So yeah, I think that's that is a good thing, and I, that's part of the reason why I love it. But I also love the art of it, yeah. which is I think the other appeal. I agree. Yep. Um, all right. So what uh, what common wisdom brewing practice do you think is uh, either wrong or that people's concerns about it are overinflated? Ooh, common wisdom. Well, sanitation you got to be careful about. Um, temperature control for fermentation you got to worry about. I think oxygen pickup when you're still on a yeast cake mm-hmm. is less of a concern than I think a lot of folks think it is. 
Um, if you've got still, still got active yeast in there, they're going to absorb that O2 so fast that for a lot of intents and purposes, it's not going to react unfavorably with the other things in there. Mm-hmm. That might be one. Um, you know, I think there's still a question about the size, the appropriate size of a yeast starter. Mm-hmm. I think that in a lot of cases, um, we might be over pitching. Mm-hmm. Um, but having said that, I've never done the experiment to really show that that's true. I think that's probably style dependent as well. And not so much style dependent, it's probably strain, strain dependent. dependent. Yeah. yeah, what what's appropriate for one strain is probably not appropriate for another. Um, and I think certainly now that we're starting to think about things like Britannomyces mm-hmm. cultures that have a completely different set of rules, um, we may find that we really have to focus on a strain-specific requirements for how to get it to do what you want it to do mm-hmm. in the carboy based on how much you pitch. So... It- would it be fair to say then that you're a big believer in this idea of like you know getting your your cell counts correct for your pitch? I do, and you know I cheat. I mean, I have a hemocytometer and I've got mm-hmm. a microscope that I have access to, and so I could do cell counts all mm-hmm. day long. And I don't. I've never done it. Um, you know, I, I go online and I use whatever the yeast calculator of the month is based mm-hmm. on the size of the culture, the amount of DMEM, and how old we think the culture is. And at least in my hands, non scientifically. Um, it's more or less performed the way it's supposed to. Um, but you know, if you want to be completely careful about that, that would be the way to do it is to be accurate with your cell counts as you know, I'm sure that a lot of commercial breweries do that now. They, they've got the in-house microbiologist with the microscope and you know, they're being careful about those sorts of things. Or, or at the very least they have the, the little bench off behind a couple of fermenters that That's has right. a microscope and a right. hemocytometer on it. That's right. Well, and I put microbiologist in quotes, right? right. So, so it might be the head brewer who's now taken on the microbiologist <laughs> duties or, yeah. you know, Wh- so. whoever, whoever's comfortable making a hemocytometer slide, they go for it. Do That's it. right. Well, and I will say too, that um, even that you got to be careful with because, um, hemocytometers are not nearly as accurate as most folks think they are. They are it rarely as anything. Oh, that's uh, the, and that's another. That's a that's a that's a separate. Well, push point for me. <laughs> but I mean, it, it goes back to. I mean, you know, you have the old saying that you know the the only man who's uh, you know it's like the only man who's sure of the time is is the guy with one clock, or right. the only person who's sure of his temperature is the man with one thermometer, right? Right. right. Yeah. And the second you get instruments involved, suddenly uh, you have questions. Yeah. Yep. Um, all right. Uh, before we go, go on to the to the competition, because I do want to cover that before we have to run. Yeah. Uh, do you have any other brewing thoughts that you think are important for uh, people to know, or things that you think are really kind of rad that people should? Nothing radical. I mean, I like I said, I'm a big proponent of making sure that your yeast is healthy, and I think the other thing that I've really tried to do lately that I think has improved my overall brewing is, is maintaining fermentation temperature control properly. Mm-hmm. Um, if you can do those two things, you can do an awful lot wrong on the front side. And, um, like I said, the yeast are going to clean up your mess to a large extent, as long as they're in the right frame of mind, the right metabolic state, they're, they're going to be in good shape. So, you know, I, I would not personally consider myself much of a radical brewer. Although I guess I will say too, that when it comes to flavor additions, I'm a big proponent of doing it all post fermentation, mm-hmm. making your tinctures, having blended things to mix in there. That way you can ultimately control, you know, I would never put a vanilla bean in the boil. Mm-hmm. I would never put a cinnamon stick in the boil. If you want to add an unusual flavor to your beer, extract it some other way, whether it's like a vodka extraction or who knows, and then do some testing, you know, get, get your, get it dialed in in terms Mm -hmm. of the amount before you then go and blow your entire keg's worth of, of beer with that flavoring addition that is not going to completely wreck it or not be enough to really taste it. Mm -hmm. You know, and then why do you even go to the trouble in the first place? All right. Now, by the way, that, that totally deserves a high five on my part. (laughs) Yeah. Because that's, I'm a big fan of that. that, that, That's me too. It, It drives Denny nuts. He, he will, 
he does not like tinctures for the most part because I think he thinks he can taste the vodka. Yeah. All right. So now the other thing, the reason I'm here is because this is Hoppy Halloween weekend, and you are the official coordinator. Chaser of monkeys and herder of cats. Right. So, so they lined us all up and they said, uh, "Will the volunteer to lead this group please step forward?" And everybody else took one step back, and I landed the job. Well, I, I got told I got told that it was there was a period of time when there was no coordinator, and the previous coordinator was going, uh, "Hey, somebody has to coordinate. Somebody has to coordinate." Yeah. And then it sounded like finally you just kind of yeah. Oh, all I right, did it. fine. I did it. So you know. Tom told us, so Tom had been the previous coordinator for the last uh, few years. Actually, I don't know how many years he's done it. He, he was, he was he the coordinator eight. when I got here, and he'd been the coordinator uh, for, the, for the last three years that I was part of the club. And, and this is, by the way, we're in year 19 of the competition. Correct. This is the 19th year. Um, so he'd done it for, for a large portion of the time, um, and he made it very clear last year that he was not going to do it again, and that if we wanted this to happen, that somebody else is going to have to step up and take the reins. Um, he did also make it clear that whoever did want to step up and take the reins was going to have a lot of help, and he's absolutely right. You know, the, the club has has done this for a long time, and the individual tasks have largely been filled by people other than Tom, mm-hmm. who knew what they were doing. Um, and at the very end, you know, I, I would have stepped up to do it sooner. The, the, the sort of side issue is that I was up for tenure this year mm-hmm. yeah. and the, the tenure process was going to happen right about the time of the meat of coordinating this, this competition. And so I knew that there was going to be a window where I was going to be completely out of the beer world for reasons of professional development and mm-hmm. career survival and all that kind of stuff. So, um, I didn't immediately jump up and say, yeah, pick me, pick me. I want to do it. Um, and so we got closer and we got closer and nobody was stepping up. And I talked to Christy, the president at the time, and said, you know, we really should do something about this. And she says, you know, I would do it too, but I'm going to be gone out of town for a certain period of time. And I talked to Carl, our AOB manager, um, about whether he would step up. He's like, you know, I, I thought you would do it, but I'm willing to help out. And so the three of us kind of decided that between the three of us, we could get it. You could cover we the could get it done. Yeah. And, and so I sort of stepped up to start organizing the process, you know, basically sending out the email saying, let's meet, let's talk about what needs to happen and got everybody in a room. And then it kind of started it on its own at that point. Um, and so I cannot take much credit for, for really running things other than maybe I lit the match. Um, you know, technically I guess I am on the hook cause it's my name as the coordinator on the website. But, um, you know, in terms of actually the business of pulling the competition off, I, I'm no more important than anybody else in the competition. I'm probably a lot less important than many others are uh, in terms of actually getting it to work. You know, one, one thing I've certainly appreciated in the last two weeks as we come down to the wire, and you'll see me pulling my hair out in the next couple of hours, mm-hmm. is um, you know the number of small tasks that have to get done to make this kind of pull off. It's not so much the competition of, of and getting the beers and getting them judged. It's all the stuff that happens after that, getting the score sheets uh, mm-hmm. uh, uh, properly sorted, getting getting the medal winners identified, getting the prizes. Mm-hmm. Sort of the prize part has, has really been an eye-opening experience in terms of all that it takes to do that. Well, and I was going to say, I was uh, impressed you uh, downstairs where the judging's happening uh, in this hotel. I mean, you've set up what, three big tables, yeah, and that's not even all of it. That's 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 well, most I, I, of it, but not even all of it. I was going to say there was a there was another pallet coming in that's as right. we were walking out that's because right. it was like, oh, look, more boxes. Yeah. Well, and I think one of the advantages of being a, a competition that has existed as long as it has is that we have over time established pretty good relationships with our sponsors, and, and they've always been, at least from where I can see, um, willing to help out mm-hmm. every year. Um, sometimes more, sometimes less, but we certainly appreciate all that they've done for us, and I think that's part of what 
makes this kind of a cool competition. You know, you win first place, you get what you will see a little bit later is, is a pretty unique lanyard uh, on the medal, as well as, you know, uh, perhaps a disproportionate number of prizes for what a, an average first place winner might get in other competitions. Mm-hmm. So um, it's something we're pretty proud of, and I think it's a, something we'd like to continue to, to keep doing as long as we can. Well, what, we had 600 entries? For, well, 600 was our cap. Right. We were actually a little bit le- lower than we were last year, probably because we got organized as late as we oh. did. Uh, I think we were at 464. Okay. Was the number. Still, so, uh, still yeah, fairly we sizable. Were, we were just over 500 last year. And that actually was also a year that had receded. I think the most we've ever done is in the 530s. Mm-hmm. Um, but honestly, given the number of judges that we have that come every year, to get much bigger than that would be pretty difficult. I, I don't know that we could realistically do all the judging in time and still get quality score sheets back to the, to the entrance if we were to get a whole lot bigger than we already are. Well, and I was going to say, what we had, there were, what, four flights yesterday? Yeah. Four flights of yeah. judging yesterday yeah. on Friday. Yeah. And today there's two, two and, and, and then there'll be the theme. best of shows yeah. and, the, and the theme competition, yeah. yep. which we, we'll be leaving uh, to go do shortly. Directly, yep. Um, but, so, while we're, we are sadly running short on time, but for the people out there who are looking at doing a competition or you know, even looking to get involved, got any tips or tricks or things that you think that they ought to pay attention to? Right. So I think any entrant, um, first of all, part of the reason you enter a beer is because you want to learn and get feedback, and it helps you grow as a brewer. And so a lot of brewers don't really know what they have in the glass. But the first step I would say is don't submit a beer based on the style you intended to brew. Mm-hmm. Submit it based on what it actually tastes like. Yep. And I think that's a common uh, sort of uh, novice mistake. The other thing is don't be afraid to send the beers to competitions that aren't close to you. Mm-hmm. Um, because if you're going to ship it at all, it doesn't matter whether you ship it you know, 100 miles away or across the country. Um, looking for competitions that have a, a track record of, of being successful, mm-hmm. um, have a high number of entries that are likely to attract a large number of judges, you're going to get good feedback that mm-hmm. way. Um, plus, I also think that it also helps avoid local bias. Mm-hmm. You know, I think every club, and you know, the club that hosts the competition is going to staff a lot of the judges for that competition. Yep. Every club has their own little niche foibles and, and focuses when it comes to how they judge their beers because they just sort of you know, evolve that way. Yep. Um, they select for it. And so sending your beers to multiple competitions, you're going to get a broader base of feedback that is not necessarily in that kind of echo chamber that that one group might have started to develop, which mm-hmm. is hard to tell when right. um, you're on the outside. So I, you know, don't be afraid to send it based on what it tastes like, not what you brewed, and then don't be afraid to send it far and wide. You know, Multiple competitions, if you can, sometimes we can't. There's cost involved, and mm-hmm. it's not worth it. But um, you know, I'm, I'm trying to see if, if I continue in this role next year, I'm going to see if I can't find a nucleus of brewers that are in an unexpected place that we can't get to submit to this competition as a new sort of second side of, of, of people sending us stuff. I'm going to start to see if I can hit the uh, Asheville, North Carolina area. So mm-hmm. let me get some brewers to send us some of their wares. There you That's go. my goal for next year. Well, and then on the organizer side, mm-hmm. you know, now that, now that you've had this experience and you've seen how the competitions run in the past, mm-hmm. What do you think is important for organizers to realize, or people who are going to organize a competition? You know, have a punch list, have a plan for when things need to happen, um, and and have people in place to help you with that once it comes comes time. Um, you know, I, I really think that being detail oriented is important. Um, you can't just kind of wing it. Um, at least if if especially if you're starting a competition, right? Mm-hmm. Um, you know, you've got to have a pretty good plan ahead of time about what steps need to need to be accomplished. And, you know, for us, um, it is a little bit more than just a competition. You know, the banquet is a big party, yep. and that's, that is perhaps 
different than some others in terms of the theme to it. And, and, and the party itself is as much a reason to do this as the actual competition is for some people. Um, and so that does add a little, a layer of complication or, mm -hmm. or requirements to the, to the organizer that is not necessarily true of your average 300 entry homebrew competition on a random Saturday in March. That's not, you know, Happy or uh, not St. Patrick's Day or something like that. You know, so the the, the fact that it does have a specific theme to it, expectations are a certain level. That's that certainly adds to the complexity. Well, yeah, and, and yeah, I mean, great prizes, the great lanyards, and you guys have been putting on a hell of a party. So yeah. that's really good for the judges. And I like the fact that you guys use this as really look. It's part competition, but it's also really part festival. So yep. let's have some fun. You have homebrew on tap in the judging room. Yeah. Yeah, you know, and you know, just everybody seems to be very convivial. So. Yeah, and I think part of it is too that you know this the group of judges and participants that have have been doing this for a long time. They've gotten to know each other. You know, we're, we're not just bringing in some random judge that we've never met before. We mm -hmm. to a large extent we know these people. Um, I'm still learning who all they all these folks are. And, and uh, uh, but you know, club members have, have have been friends with these folks for a long time, and I think that's part of what makes it successful. Is mm -hmm. These relationships have been built over the over the years, and um, they're not going to go away. And, and so unless somebody completely leaves the judging scene or moves out of, out of, out of the area, then, you know, they're going to be engaged and uh, volunteering for a long time. So right. hopefully that'll continue. Well, and so it, it's obviously too late for you to enter the 19th Hoppy Halloween since we're just about done judging it. Right. We're, we're going to go do best of show here in a moment. Yeah. Uh, but next year there's the big two O. Yep. So uh, possibly some special things going on for that. You know, I, I say watch this space. Yeah. Um, whether we do something big for 20 or whether we wait and do it for 21, I think is on the table. Um, <laughs> you know, I, this has been a transition year for us. I'm moving away from a, a longtime coordinator to, to sort of this piecemeal approach. We'll see if um, uh, how many members of the current organization committee stay on to do it next year. Mm -hmm. um, I do know that regardless of what happens, it will happen next year, and, and it's going to get started a lot sooner right. by whomever is the leading uh, driver of that train and entries are entries are typically accepted uh, late september uh, Usually early beginning october. of october um the, we'll start posting the announcements uh sort of nationwide in september but usually it's the beginning of october when we start accepting entries and it's always uh the weekend on or around halloween that, that we do the actual judging that's always been the tradition so there you go that's right. all right well hey so watch uh, watch for hoppy halloween number 20 yep uh, get your entries in uh, if you're in the Fargo, North Dakota area or even somewhere relatively within a driving distance. I highly recommend that you come because, like I said, it's a judging. It's a party. Everybody's having fun. Yeah. And what? You don't want to have fun. That's right. What are you? And who knows? You know, you may have a chance to you know, run into a random speaker like me. <laughs> so we have to go now. We have to go uh, prepare to participation. do participation. Yeah, we have to we have to go do best of show and the big theme competition of That's the right. year, and then uh, eventually I'm going to get heckled apparently while I'm speaking. So That's right, we'll be throwing tomatoes. Yeah, yeah. let's have, let's go have some fun, John. Thank you so much Sounds for taking good. the time. Thank you. Glad you could right. make it. Yeah. All right, and hey, so everybody, have a good time. Get your beers in. Happy Halloween. And that was Drew talking to John Wilkinson of the Prairie Home Companion Homebrewers about the Hoppy Halloween competition and uh, John's ideas for uh, yeast storage and starters. And I got to say, man, he's a microbiologist. I pay attention. And lazy. Just like you. <laughs> I know. I know. I like uh, Several of the things he said uh, really spoke to me, man, in my own theory of... Uh, pragmatism it's not laziness it's pragmatism next thing you know you're going to be calling it efficiency <laughs> oh that's a good one yeah it's it's pragmatic efficiency there how's that good 
About as good as a ukulele solo. All right, let's get out of here. (laughs) Okay, we're going to get out of the lounge and come back and wrap up the show with some Q&A, a quick tip, and something other than beer. So stick around. We're going to be right back. Alrighty, we are back, and it's time for questions and answers, and we will give answers. We won't guarantee the veracity of the answers. Our first one comes from my good buddy, Tony Oshner, who owns Micro Homebrew up in Kenmore, Washington, one of my favorite homebrew shops in the world. Tony says... With White Labs releasing the WLP885 Zurich Lager yeast again, I'm finally going to brew my take on Sami Schlaus on December 6th. A few weeks before, I will brew a Doppelbach to act as my starter. Some say you can just pitch the Sami Schlaus right on the Doppelbach yeast cake. Some say you should rinse the yeast and pitch an amount based on a calculator like Mr. Malty. What would you do if you were rinsing the yeast? Can you give us a little step-by-step on how you do it? Most importantly, will you be brewing a Sammy Schlaus-inspired beer on December 6th? Cheers! Alright, well, so some say that yes, I will be. Tackle easy question first. <laughs> uh, I, I, I won't. Yeah. No, well, that's fine. You're, that's not your, your bag, man. That's right. Well, I like the beer. You'll just have to send me some of yours. That chance. All right. But yes, I will be more than likely brewing a Sammy Claus inspired beer on the 6th. Now, on the other question about do I rinse the cake? Do I just use the cake uh, entirely? Do I do magical shenanigans with wands and um, cell counters and all that sort of fun stuff? Uh, no to cleaning. No to cell counting. Yes to using pretty much the whole dang cake. And, and I'm, I, I totally agree with that. Yeah, and the reason for that is, I mean, if we're talking about like, hey, I'm going to make a yeast for like a double IPA or, you know, an IPA, then yeah, I wouldn't want to go use the whole yeast cake unless I was like stepping up volume. Like I made a five gallon starter batch and I was going to make 20 gallons of the bigger beer. In this particular case, you're talking about a beer that starts at 1140 original gravity. That is a massive beer. It is a stupidly massive beer. And whenever you're dealing with something that's stupidly massive and stupidly hard to ferment, you need all the help you can get. So when I do my Falcon's Claws, I use the full cake, and I also make sure I do multiple rounds of oxygenation just to give it every last chance to be able to go drive it down. The most successful fermentation I ever had was a year when we hit 1140 on the original gravity, dead spot on, and I got that thing down with the Zurich Lager yeast, to a final gravity of about 1020. That's a big beer. That's a, that's pretty amazing, man. Yep. Um, and, you know, my take on it, not specific to this beer, but in general, is that I have tried the yeast rinsing, and I've tried reusing yeast without the rinsing, and I just can't see any point for the rinsing. It didn't improve anything. It's another place where you can just screw things up and uh, contaminate your yeast. And 
not rinsing the yeast fits in perfectly with my theory of pragmatic efficiency, which I just came up with. Yeah, you've come up with it in such a way that you've now efficiently restolen and rebranded the idea. Nice job, that's, buddy. That's right, man. And that's what I call pragmatic efficiency. <clears throat> mm-hmm. So, Tony, what we both say is don't rinse it, pitch the whole thing, and best wishes for your beer, buddy. Yeah, and again, this applies to this kind of case where we're talking a big mammer jammer of beer. Now, don't use the yeah. whole yeast cake on a, on a smaller beer. Use the no, whole no, yeast no, cake no. on this thing. <laughs> Yeah, you don't need yeast calculators. What you need is a little common sense and making an educated guess. And uh, if you haven't made that guess before, start doing it, and then you'll get educated. Our next uh, question here comes from Derek Clark, and it's going to be right up Drew's alley. Derek says, hi, I've been binge listening to your podcast over the last while. I wonder if he's drooling yet. And I've really been enjoying them. I've got a quick and simple question for Drew regarding his tinctures. I've been trying to get the flavor right on my juniper saison for a while now, and my next attempt will involve a juniper vodka tincture, which I have sitting on a shelf doing its thing. I made the tincture by grinding slash crushing dried juniper berries, putting them in an empty 35 centiliter bottle, and then adding the vodka back in. The extra vodka was disposed of safely. Good job. The question is, how does Drew go about filtering his tinctures, as mine is starting to look pretty murky with a thick layer of berries at the bottom? Cheers, Derek. It's a threefold process, and it's very complicated. Step one, time. Step two, cold. Step three, paper coffee filter. <laughs> So, no, what I, what I will do is I will actually go and throw most of my tinctures, if I need them to be bright and crystal clear, I will go throw them in, say, my freezer for, you know, a couple of days, because, hey, it's vodka, it's not freezing. And that tends to drop almost everything out anyway. And then after that, a quick pour through a paper coffee filter uh, held up in a sieve into another vessel pretty much takes care of everything else. There you go. There you go. That's easy. Ta-da. Our next question comes from Craig Arkfield. It says, I'm interested in your keg fermentation technique, but can't remember which episode you talked about it. I listened to the Purge a Gigantic episode, and you talked about dip tubes. My two main questions are about the airlock and transfers. You remove the PRV, and then what goes in its place? For the transfers, do you need to have the airlock in place? You hook up to the in-coupler? Does it matter if you use ball or pin lock? I currently have two ball lock kegs, but think pin lock may fit in my fermentation fridge better. Thank you for your help, and I love the podcast. I also love hearing you on my local podcast, Come and Brew It. So, Denny, what do you got? Okay, Craig. Um, I uh, I don't ferment in kegs all the time, but I do I have a couple 10-gallon kegs that I tend to ferment in. And here's the way that I deal with it. About half the time, I simply open the pressure release valve. I don't remove it, and then just put like a little piece of foil over it to keep anything from getting back in. The other thing I do is attach a blow-off tube to the gas in post. Remember, that's the in, not the out. I guarantee you, uh, because I've had friends do this, if you attach a blow-off tube to the out post, you'll come back the next morning and find that your keg has been drained. By attaching it to the in post, which is above the level of your beer, CO2 comes out, goes into your blow-off jar, whatever you use, and you're good to go. Uh, I've never dealt with putting an airlock on there because there are easier ways to deal with it, and it just was not necessary. For the transfers, no, you don't need to have any of that in place. 
you hook up to the end coupler. No, to do keg-to-keg -keg transfers, you hook the two outs together because when you uh, are putting the beer into your receiving keg, you want it to fill from the bottom up, not from the top down. Does it matter if you use pin lock or ball lock? Not a bit. You can use whatever you've got. Uh, if you think pin lock is going to fit into your fermentation fridge better, go get yourself some and use those. Any uh, Anything to add there, Mr. Beecham? In the names of efficient pragmatism? That's no. right. Pragmatic efficiency. No. <laughs> just no. Yeah. Yeah, actually, so actually, I will say, I don't do a blow-off tube ever. When I'm in my kegs, I'm just doing you know open fermentation via the PRV. Never had a problem with it, although you might want to be careful if you're doing something with a lot of hop sludge in it, uh, because yeah. that might be problematic. But no, otherwise, I do pretty much exactly what you do. Out-to-out, um, uh, uh, out, PRV open, PRV closed when transferring. Good times. Yep, exactly. Okay, this last question is going to be for Drew, and it comes from Matt Sweeney. And Matt says... I have questions about best practices in regards to cleaning and sanitizing my draft system. I run a keezer with a collar setup, and my lines are relatively short, like five feet or so. What do you like to use as a cleaner? I use OxyClean for most things cold side, but there are several products out there specifically for cleaning beer lines. Do you sanitize your systems after cleaning? I use StarSan for all of my sanitizing, but haven't bothered to use it yet for my draft system. How often should I be cleaning? Right now, I pretty much just hook up another keg once the old one kicks and blow out the old beer with the yeast in the bottom of the new keg. I've cleaned it maybe twice in the last year. What method do you find most effective to do the cleaning itself? I use a pond pump to recirculate my cleaner, but I've also seen a modified hand pump used and even CO2 to push the cleaner through. I'd love to hear what the two of you have adopted as best practices for cleaning your beer lines. And I'll just jump in here real quickly before Drew provides a full answer and say, for 20 years, I've been using Cobra taps on my kegs in the fridge, so I have no idea. Well, and also, you're in a state where I don't think they allow you to adopt due to felony restrictions. But <laughs> here's what I've adopted as best practices. I still am actually mostly on Cobra lines, uh, just because, I don't know, it, for some reason, I always think if I have a tap line with actual faucets, I'm either going to drink more or I'm going to be the idiot who opens up the tap faucet and lets it pour everywhere. So, but I will say, okay, in terms of cleaning products, uh, our sponsor, uh, Craftmeister, makes BLC. And BLC is a great product for cleaning draft lines. It's And what does BLC stand for? Beer line cleaner. There you go. All right. But if you remember back to the last episode, we talked about the story about the man drinking caustic and damages insides. Well, BLC is a little bit safer, but you still need to treat it with respect. What I've always done in the past is very simple. Just basically BLC solution in a keg, because I have a lot of kegs, apparently, because when I got into the hobby, you can get them for 10 bucks a piece. Uh, good luck doing that nowadays. But beer line cleaner into a keg, pump that through via CO2. And then, you know, collect that in a bucket so I can re reuse it. And then I have another keg with rinse water. Use that, but that actually gets tossed. Don't reuse the rinse water. And then a final keg with actual sanitizing solution in it. Now, I do this every time I swap kegs on lines, or every time I take my lines out, like even just my Cobra lines, I take them out to a party and whatnot. I'll try and remember to do this immediately, because if I don't, I'll forget. And if I forget, 
lines get bad. So I don't want bad lines. So I'll try and do this pretty much immediately. So for me, the maintenance schedule is uh, every time they get swapped out on terms of kegs or every time I'm bringing them back from a festival and I'm not necessarily going to use those same lines again for a while. Now, for you, I would say, yeah, I would follow that same process. Every time you switch a keg, go and do it. Reasons why. Because over time, even though you think, hey, I'm just running beer through this, you know, so there shouldn't be any problems, you know, the, my beer is sanitary. You're going to get buildup in those lines. And that buildup is going to allow other things to sort of take hold and flavor your beer, whether just from the material and the crud in the lines or things growing and protected by the material and crud in the lines. So you really don't want to let it set because this is plastic. It is porous. It will allow things to sort of just take hold and you'll never get rid of it, which means that you'll have to replace the lines. Now, if you're in a commercial service situation, for instance, the recommendation there is that you clean your tap lines, regardless of keg swaps, every two weeks. So... A good practice that a lot of places will take if they're doing things properly is one week they clean half the taps, the next week they clean the other half. And that way their tap lines are always in that two-week window and they're always staying clean. Now, as homebrewers, do you have to do that? No. But still a good idea to clean your uh, lines a little bit more often than uh, twice. What I do with my corny kegs is that every time a keg kicks, after I rinse it out, I fill it up with a hot solution of Kraftmeister oxygen wash. I totally disassemble my Cobra tap and the beer lines and the quick disconnects and drop them in there too and just let them sit in there and uh, soak in the in the oxygen cleaner. Uh, and, you know, it, it's quick, it's simple, it does everything at once, and it's been effective for me. Yeah, and by the way, good point. Clean out those Cobra line, uh, those Cobra heads. Take those things apart. If you've never taken one of those apart, they're super easy to take apart, and you'll probably be horrified with what's inside of them. Just what I was going to say, man, uh, the best reason to take them apart and clean them is that then you can get a handle on all the gunk that's in there and know when it's time to replace them. Yep. So there you go. That's how you clean. That's or at least right. how I clean. <laughs> that's how we both clean. All righty. I've got the quick tip this week, and the quick tip this week comes from one of my favorite movies, and I'll say, never give up. Never surrender. By Grapthar's hammer, I will avenge you. <laughs> That's right. Galaxy Quest. Absolutely love it. And uh, it inspired me on uh, on a beer that I had recently. When I was at the Pacific Northwest Homebrew Conference last March, in the swag bag was a jar of blood orange puree and a little bag of dried orange peel. I thought to myself, ah, let's make a blood orange IPA. So I came home, brewed up kind of a generic IPA. Uh, after fermentation was pretty much done, I added the blood orange puree. I had stuck the uh, orange peel in for the last five minutes of the boil. When I tasted this beer, I just did not like it at all. There was a lot of astringency from the orange peel. I'd obviously used way too much. And it just was not the kind of beer that I wanted to drink. What to do, what to do, what to do. I didn't know. I left it sitting there until I got back from HomebrewCon, where, as fate would have it, in the swag bag there was another jar of the very same blood orange puree. In the meantime, Wyust had sent me a smack pack of some experimental breath that they had laying around. So I just thought, okay... This is what is going to save that beer, I hope. And it's kind of like a, an old thing like where uh, when, when you have a beer and you don't know what to do with it, you just dump bread in it and see what happens. 
So I uh, I took the beer out of the keg, poured it back into a fermenter, added the blood orange puree and the brett so that the or- blood orange puree would give the beer a little something to work on. Let it sit out in my garage through the summer with temperatures in excess of 100 degrees. And two or three months later, I opened it up, saw a very interesting looking pellicle on top and thought, okay, it's time to get brave and try this stuff. And what do you know? It was not bad at all. So there you go, guys. Never give up. Never surrender. If you've got a beer that didn't turn out the way you wanted it to, think about what you can do to it to save it because you can always dump it out. But what the heck? You might as well try to save it first, huh? Yeah. I mean, look, if there's a chance to save something, I think I think you should. <laughs> it's and, the humanitarian thing to do, right? Yeah, those many yeasts died to bring you this beer. That's that's so, right, man. No, but I I've done the same the same sort of thing, and in fact, uh, that reminds me, we totally need to have the Rescue Rangers show over on the Brew Files, so we can talk about how you rescue beers that have gone somewhere that you didn't intend for them to go. Good idea. We'll do that one of these days. And you've got something other than beer this week, huh? Well, in this particular case, I think we both have something other than beer, since this directly impacts both of us. Yep. And that is, of course, that as this week sort of kicked off while we're recording, uh, we learned that Tom Petty passed away. Now, uh, I don't know about you guys, but Tom Petty to me was just, you know, basically part of my childhood and like part of part of me growing up in the state of Florida. I know so many people who talk like Tom Petty talked and those songs you know, talked to so many people and they talked about things that I knew, like for instance, an American girl, you know, he talks about her going out on 441. I grew up along 441. So the songs just have a, a big old meaning to me. And last night I was taking a long car drive home. It took me about two and a half hours. And the whole time I was listening to the Tom Petty radio station on Sirius XM. And for that two and a half hours, it was nothing but nonstop Tom Petty and they never repeated a song, and I knew every single one of those songs. And it was just, like, stopping and revisiting and going, oh, yeah, he wrote a ton of good music. Yeah, he he sure did, man. Um, and my my connection to Tom Petty is even a little bit more direct. I, I, I find it kind of amusing to say he's a part of your childhood. <laughs> I guess that shows the, our age disparity, huh? Back in uh, about 1981, I was working for a band from New Zealand called Split Ends, and we were on a tour with Tom Petty and the Heartbreakers. It was just about uh, when he had the song out with Stevie Nicks, because she was out for part of the tour, too. We, would, we were kind of like co-headliners, depending on if we were in the U.S. or Canada. But I got to hear Tom Petty and the Heartbreakers probably at least five nights a week for uh, several months. And I got to say, I never got tired of them. They gave a great show every night. He gave it 100 uh, percent. Brilliant songs, a performer with a lot of heart. And I think we're all going to miss him. Yeah, and I remember uh, I saw him at Bonnaroo one year and Stevie Nicks came out to perform with him because why not? And yeah, that was absolutely amazing. So, Tom Petty, thank you. That's right, man. Thanks for all you did for us. Okay, well, after that tremendous bummer, we're going to try and pick things up a little bit here. And we want to thank you all for listening to Experimental Brewing. 
You can catch all of our latest adventures and writings by going to our website, which is experimentalbrew.com. Don't forget to follow us on Twitter, where we're at EXP Brewing. We're on Facebook. We're on Instagram. I hang out on a whole bunch of different beer forums, including the AHA forum. You can find Drew on the Homebrewing subreddit or the Homebrew Slack channel. If you want to ask us a question or suggest topics, recipes, or experiments, or even just rant and rave, you can email us at podcast at experimentalbrew.com. Or if you want to get a hold of each one of us, I'm Denny at experimentalbrew.com. He's Drew at experimentalbrew.com. And you can take advantage of technology and leave us a voicemail at 626-765-1AL. And after we filter out all the obscene language, we'll put it on the show. So, until next time, remember to always brew experimentally. Or brew wacky. And we'll see you on the next episode of Experimental Brewing.